Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders. Was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is episode 93 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast, with a new episode released every single day. You get an extended interview like this one every Monday, and short four or five minute daily episodes Tuesday through Sunday on a show that I call This Day Rocks. Loads of content for classic rock fans. Today's interview is with a fantastic character and an incredible bass player with an insane CV. Guy Pratt is a bass virtuoso whose talent has graced the recordings and live performances of some of the most iconic artists in history. With a career spanning several decades, Guy has established himself as a sought-after session musician, collaborator and a force to be reckoned with on stage. Now, throughout his illustrious journey, Guy Pratt has lent his undeniable bass skills to legendary bands and singers. He is perhaps best known for his work with Pink Floyd, joining the band in the 80s following the departure of Roger Waters. Guy played a vital role in Pink Floyd's A Momentary Lapse of Reason and The Division Bell and their monumental tours, captivating audiences with his dynamic bass playing and backing vocals too. But his contributions extend far beyond Pink Floyd and the individual members as well. He's worked with a myriad of celebrated artists, including Madonna, The Smiths, Rod Stewart, Brian Ferry, Tears for Fears, Michael Jackson, Echo and the Bunnymen, and many, 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 many more. Plus, as a comedian and podcast host himself, he's a fantastic storyteller, which is what we love on Vintage Rock Pod. So you're going to hear some great stories about working with some of the biggest names in music what it was like being brought into Pink Floyd to play bass after Roger Waters left, what it was like working with Pink Floyd and then later with each member of the band on their solo stuff too, his friendship with Johnny Marr after a short stint with the Smiths, the very, very unusual studio session with Michael Jackson, and so much more. He's a fantastic guest, so I really hope you enjoy this chat with Guy Pratt. Well, Guy, it's an absolute pleasure chatting with you. And uh, as a classic rock podcast, the best place to start is uh, Madonna. Um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> as you do. Um, I want to start with with the beginning. I mean, I heard you tell a story once where you said one of the very first things she said to you, I think it was a phone call at like four in the morning or something, was, uh, I hear you're funny, make me laugh. I mean, what was going on? I hear you're funny, make me laugh. Yeah, she did. That's, that's true. That's absolutely true. Um, because I'd... Uh, it was at the, uh, it was at the end of that first insane um 13 month pink floyd campaign really wasn't at all and um and it was in, right at the end of it pat leonard had come to a show who was my friend from before pink floyd who i'd met through brian ferry who was of course madonna's writer and producer and he just said what are you doing after this and i was like i had no conception of any sort of life or anything after i know I, I assumed i was just going to die also i mean I, <laughs> I really was so completely, um, you know, bubbled, so to speak, and uh, not in a great way, to be honest. But I uh, um, and I said, well, I don't know why. He he said, well, how do you fancy playing on the next Madonna record? I was like, oh my god, that sounds amazing. So so I was like, yeah, absolutely. Because bear in mind, she'd um, she never used bass players before then. Even on the Nile Rogers one, I think Bernard might have played on one song, but it's all synth. So she'd never had a, a bass player. Um, and um, 
True Blue. Did True Blue? No, I think True Blue is all keyboard. I, I probably should have researched that before I said that. Um, but uh, uh, so, yeah, the tour ended. I went home, blah, blah, blah. Then we started arranging it. And then he said to me, who do you want to play drums? I thought, oh, my God, I get to pick my own drummer. So I picked this mate of mine uh, uh, who um, who has a habit of doing this, it turns out. Though not for the last 30 years. He's been in a very regular gig. Um, when and she'd agreed all that, and so I had this section. We were going to go out, and then he blew it out like oh, no. a week before we were going out. And apparently, Madonna just lost her mind. She was like, "Well, why are we getting this fucking guy? He can't even get a drummer this time, yeah, mate." You know. And um, so I was out, and and there was, you know, I remember Pat calling me to tell me, and I was like, "Mate, please, you can't." He goes, "I know how important it is, but the, you know, the nursery, the telling, the profile, the level of this album." Went, "No, no, no, never mind all that." I've told everyone <laughs> I'm going to be on with the Donna. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but then, and um, bless him to his credit, apparently the person I have to thank really, forget me that is, um, is Nick Kamen, oh. who I knew. I've done some TVs with, and I knew obviously his, his brother Chester was one of my best friends in the world um, who I'd been playing with, with, you know, he's an amazing guitar player. Uh, talked with me with David Gilmore, in fact, years later, when we worked with Brian Ferry. And, and uh, but Nick was out in LA and she was currently walking down Malibu Beach in a foul mood and just bumped into Nick in the morning. And he went, Yeah, do you know what this guy Pratt is? And went, Oh, guy, yeah, he's lovely. Yeah, no, guy's great. So uh, that was it. So I was back in the picture. Though, frankly, when we and so and they the next thing I got was this phone call and it was the first words she ever spoke to me. Wow, like, yeah, funny, make me laugh. <laughs> um, I, can't, I, I love the idea that this is the funny thing is think about it, that Pat's last ditch attempt at getting me on the album is, but he's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> and can you remember what you actually said to her? What did you, did you no do? No idea what I said. No idea what I said. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> it goes, it goes back to, you know, when I was at school backed up against the wall by a bully, you come up with something. Yeah. So... <laughs> Whatever it was, it obviously worked. It obviously yeah. worked. <laughs> and and as you said, they working with Madonna, it wasn't just any Madonna album and any Madonna material. I mean, Like a Prayer, it was one of the biggest songs of, of the 80s. It was a defining song as well. It was, it was a, a barrier-pushing song in terms of the video and things like that as well. And you played on that. And it wasn't as if you were just a background bass player. I mean, the bass lines on that song really shine through, don't they? And I know, it's amazing. And I, st- I still can't believe. In fact, yeah, I would say that was like her, that that was that was the album where she be- she sort of grew yeah. up and became a serious artist. It's, you know, the divorce album, as it's known. Um, and uh, yeah, that's when she kind of did the George Michael, kind of really, you know what I mean, went, went to the yeah. next stage. And it was amazing, you know, and it also because it had all these amazing musicians on it. And the songs were incredible, like fantastically complex songs, a lot of them. And yeah, Like a Prayer, like I said, I still have a very vague, memories of it but it was um the very fact i'm I'm pretty sure that whatever i did whatever when i did what i did that i was just mucking about i'm sure it was one of those okay we've got it now let's do one just go nuts you know and um when i clearly did um and somehow it stayed on the on the album incredible so, what was she like to, to work with then in the, in the studio i mean was, was she hands-on was she very proactive when very, it comes very to hands-on amazing yeah. incredibly impressive very very professional incredible ears like i used to say when like when we did um because it was cut live everything apart from like a prayer everything was just cut live with the band wow um it was i mean the band this was amazing it's like why were they asking me for a drummer we had sugarfoot moffat <laughs> i mean come on um and the band was amazing the band was um uh, Bruce Gage on guitar, 
uh, Jay Winding on keyboards yeah. and Pat on keyboards. Um, and, and and she would, like when we did Oh Father, uh, we were just given the chart. We all sat down. We played through it. She sang it in the control room. And then and even though she'd been singing it, she then went around the whole band and gave everyone notes and like really good notes. Wow. Hope, you know, I remember her saying to me, Guy, just duck eggs. Except that one fill at the end. I like that. Keep that. And so, and you know, all her, you know, Jay, no bells till the second chorus. Like, really, you know, like a producer. Wow. That's, yeah, that's it's quite incredible. Just, yeah, it was. Yeah. No, she's, you know, she's Madonna for a reason. Absolutely. And, and one of the biggest stars in the world and for, for a reason as well, but another huge star in the world. I mean, he obviously heard this song and, and he asked you to, to come and play on his music as well. Michael Jackson. I mean, how did, how did all that sound of kind of work in your head? It was, it was, I mean, it was an insane, it really was an insane period in my life. I kind of wish, I just wish I'd been a bit more present because <laughs> I, I'd been on this roller coaster for a couple of years. I was kind of, frankly, I was off my head off the time. And uh, and I was in LA and I was doing this, I'd become this sort of top session dog, which was never what I wanted to do. I had no, you know, obviously I wasn't going to say no, but it was just felt like a whipper. I, mean, I, I had unbelievable imposter syndrome because, you know, I'm yeah. a bandy type, but I can't read music. I don't go to fucking Berkeley or, you know, anything <laughs> like, and I was literally just forever stuck in rooms with people who played on Steely Dan records. And it was just like, we're doing it. You know, I mean, Kind of the only thing I had going for me was I was definitely the best dressed person. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and um, yeah, it was, uh, and so, yeah, so that was, so this got to the point where I went and did the, I, I did the toy that uh, did the Madonna record, came home, then went back to LA and did the toy matinee project, which is still one of the things I'm most proud of in my life, which came, which was uh, produced by Bill Bottrell, who'd engineered the Madonna album, okay. who's just the insane, amazing maverick and was behind Sheryl Crow and all sorts of, I mean, and worked with Jeff Lynne a lot. Um, just in, and then Michael Jackson fan. So, uh, um, yeah, I, I went back and did this time out an A project with him with, which was Pat Leonard's sort of baby. And then I had to go, I had to leave that before it finished to go back on tour with Pink Floyd, where we did, we went to Russia and we played Venice. And then from that, I had to come straight back to LA to start Robbie Robertson's album. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was nuts. It was nuts. Um, and then, and then I'm like a few weeks into Robbie's record and I get a call one day from Bill Bottrell and he goes, Hey guy, what do you, what do you, do you want to come and play on a Michael Jackson session? It's like, what? He goes, yeah, you need to be here by six. I was like, well, what kind of, we don't really finish till about seven. So I said, well, I'll ask Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just this one having to go to Robbie Roberts and go, Robbie, I'm really listen, mate, is there any chance I could get off early tonight? Because I've got a Michael Jackson session. And he just went, what am I supposed to say to that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and again, those sessions were just me and um and Bill in the studio. Okay. And and his and his MD, but who wasn't someone whose name I can't remember because, it, you know, it wasn't Greg Gaines, who's my mate. And, um, and it wasn't another guy. So, and, and it was just weird because it would be just us. And there was this track and, and apparently Michael had heard it, 
heard like a prayer. And so I was, just, you know, they said he wants that vibe. So I'd assume, right. So I had my red spectre, had my octave pedal. And I thought I was all ready for, I was right. God, this is going to be Michael Jackson. It's going to be some stomping groove. Yeah. You know, it's going to be like yeah. fucking don't stop till you get enough part two. And <laughs> I'm going to be all over it like a cheap suit. And, uh, <laughs> and I got in there. And of course it says, what about sunlight? What about trees? It's like, what? Um, and so I came up with that line. Um, which is quite funny in the fullness of time, which uh, is, you know, it's the complete opposite. I mean, it couldn't be simpler. I mean, it's basically a slowed down smoke on the water. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> but Michael wasn't there. My, and, and I was asked to come back and, you know, come, and he, so I came back the next day. They said Michael would be there, went back. Michael, and Michael wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I put down some more things. And then this happened about three times. You know, I kept coming back. They said Michael would be there and then Michael never was there. And eventually I went, look, Mike would just be here. Tell me what he wants. I'll do it. We can all go home. And uh, so I get a call next day from Bill. Guy, Michael's the studio. He's not leaving. Right. Rush down the studio. And Michael's <laughs> just left. Um, <laughs> but it was very weird. It was very different in the studio. There was this sort of massive Samoan bloke. Someone would be, I don't know, like better suited to being, well, I don't know, a bodyguard perhaps. <laughs> and he was down one end of the desk and he wouldn't let me get down there. Because uh, this was back when you could smoke in studios. I think I was trying to get an ashtray. It kept mm-hmm. up in my way. I was like, all right. So I, I did a pass at it. And then this guy sort of leans over to the, to the side of the desk come, and is sort of nodding. And he comes back and goes, yeah, I think Michael would find that appropriate. I'm like, what? <laughs> That's weird. It's like this guy who can hardly speak English, but he's sort of – he's obviously – but it somehow understands exactly what Michael would require from a bass performance. So, um, and then it becomes very apparent. Of course, this guy is is talking to someone uh, un- who's hiding behind the mixing desk, and it's oh, Michael Jackson. He's strange. hiding behind the mixing desk. Yeah. So to this day, I never met him. Wow. He was that in the is room. Very very bizarre. <laughs> but, but there was a lot of that. Michael Michael was going through a period of hiding from people. At that time, I mean, there's a rather unkind rumor that I heard that someone said who had been working on the session said, well, things because he was having so much work done at oh, the okay. time. Interesting little sidebar here. Though, um, Spy magazine, which was a uh, an American sort of very sophisticated humor magazine in the 80s, um, they did a thing where they they got an FBI facial reconstruction expert <laughs> because the FBI have these guys because. Loads of criminals, and they gone that they have their faces rebuilt as if you're on the run, so that yeah, they just completely transform their appearance, so they don't have to hide all the time. And these guys can sort of see who someone is, and and, and so they just showed him Michael Jackson from the beginning with all the work he was doing. And they said, "So where's this guy going with this?" And they went, "Ramesses the <laughs> second. <laughs> and apparently, he just had some really extensive work done, and he had um, a flap of skin hanging. Oh off. God. Yeah, hanging down <laughs> under his eye. And apparently when he danced, which he liked to do in the studio, people would just throw up. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So, 
I, that, I, that hasn't been verified. Yeah. Allegedly, allegedly. Al- allegedly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Some oh. people say, yeah. Yes, I say that's it. Oh, wonderful stuff. Um, again, on, on Vintage Rock Pub, we like to hear the stories behind uh, certain bands and, and, and people that you've crossed paths with. And, and something very, fairly early on was um, the Smiths. I mean, before they were supposed to go to the States, Andy Rourke, who we, we sadly lost very recently as well. Yeah, very um, sad, that. Very yeah, sad. indeed. He was uh, arrested for drugs and they didn't think he was going to be able to get there with the, all the rules and everything about getting into America and stuff like that and and you you were hired weren't you? you were called up to to almost take his place for this tour but it never actually went ahead you never actually went over there no, did you no it went ahead and kind of in the fullness of time I've got a feeling I don't think I ever really I mean that I I was an absolute last resort fail safe okay. but I don't think it was ever really really on the cards it, I think this was more about keeping Johnny happy because Johnny and I were Johnny Marr and I were in the, in the middle of this kind of mad bromance having the time of our lives together running around towns playing on loads of records it was and it was just the best and um and and there was a thing of and I think that's what it was it was I don't think Morrissey ever entertained the idea of me doing it or anyone else ever doing it and um and you know and I'm really glad I didn't because it because I would have just stuck out like a sore thumb I don't think it's and um, you know that was Andy's gig, and Andy, I mean, it, but it, it was just a wonderful, wonderful week. Yeah. I drive past the place every time because I live down in Sussex now. Okay, and it was a place called Stanbridge Farm, which is near Gatwick. Yeah, and it was this beautiful old—I mean, it might be Elizabethan or something—beautiful old Tudor uh, farmhouse, and it just had this barn attached to it, which was the rehearsal room, and it was a big thing. You know, people go and rehearse there for weeks, and then, unfortunately, I think it might have closed because the road got widened. Uh, a few years back, um, which is a shame. So, which meant that the farm was right next to the road. So, I don't know what it's become now, but I drive past it once, you know, a couple of times a week. And I, oh, I, I, so it's always there fondly, fondly in my memory because they were just lovely. There was, you know, and it was, it was interesting because um, this is the time because they were huge at the time. Yeah. You know, it, well, I mean, what was funny was, was that, of course, it, you, they still had that air where you thought of them in terms of an indie band, mm. you know, yeah. but they were, they were enormous pop stars. I mean, uh, and, uh, and of course there were red tops, there were paparazzi hiding in the, in the grounds and stuff trying <laughs> to, because they had this drug bus called, and, and like boy, George had just been busted for there being a big thing with him. Yeah. And so he was sending messages of support. And it's, you know, it's like, Oh my God, we're in that world. <laughs> yes. <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then, and and so we, uh, and yeah, I said, and it was Andy showing me his parts and Smith's songs and Andy's parts are really a lot more complicated than you think. The way Johnny writes is, is fantastic. Like, yeah. right. Okay, there's this intro, which never happens again. And then there's uh, like this uh, thing that's like the chorus, but it's not, it's more of like a second intro. And then you've got the verse, right? But it only happens on the first verse this time. And then there's like the, the bridge. But again, but this is the bridge. It's the same as the third bridge, but they're not the second bridge. And then he gets to the chorus. But obviously, this chorus is slightly different to the other choruses. Then there's the second verse, which isn't quite the first verse. And they're, I mean, amazingly crafted pieces. And, you know, and Andy's lines were pretty, he had a lovely melodic thing. So, uh, yeah, and we had a week doing that. And, and of course, yes, my, of course I'm, a, you know, I'm a sober man now. So this is quite shameful. But on the last night, we just got completely off our nuts. And we ended up, we had a, a game of football. I think we were all on acid and all sorts. And um, and uh, 
when Johnny, when I was re- writing my book, I sent this story to Johnny just to say, mate, are you okay with me putting <laughs> yes. this in? And he went, yeah, guy, uh, it's fine. There's just one thing you got wrong. We did have the football match, and I think you were both referee and manager. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, the the story is, it was about nine o'clock in the morning, and I went to bed, and I clearly, I was lying there, and I thought, I haven't finished. (laughs) So I went and started banging on John, what I thought was Johnny's door. Johnny, you can't wake up. Oh, sorry, that was probably much. (laughs) Johnny, wake up, bastard. God, they, and then, of course, it was Morris's room. Oh, no. <laughs> and Morris, Morris would have gone to bed straight after Dad's army. Uh, so he And he just got up, went and got the train, went back to London, and that was it. And then I went back to London, and then I just didn't hear anything. <laughs> Game over. Game over. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned your bromance there with Johnny Marr. I mean, obviously, he's such an influential guitarist, his style, very unique yeah. and all that sort of stuff. I mean, what was he like to, to, to play with on various things? And what was he like as a person to, to be around at that time? Cause it was really, really I'm, I'm, exciting time. A really exciting time. I mean, because I, and it was only because um, with Brian Ferry, we would, we, Brian had this great idea of there's money changes everything, which is the B side to big mouth strikes again. And is an instrumental and Brian or someone else had had the idea of doing writing of Brian writing a song over that and putting it out, which is genius because then that's Brian's way of tapping into <laughs> as I said, those lonely tear stained bedsits. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, and we did, and for some reason, and we were just having trouble getting the track. And it was Brian who said, why don't we get the guy I played? Why don't we get Johnny Marr in? And I was all like, I mean, I didn't really rate them, you know, I didn't, because it's that thing with this. It's the same. This has happened to loads of people I've introduced them over the years where where on the surface you know a lot of people just hear morrissey they yeah. hear morrissey and you like it you don't like it you know whatever and it's an, an, an awful lot of people are like well i love what he's saying i can't really you know not really love <laughs> it and and you don't really and, and you have to get past that get past whatever your opinion is of that even if it's good before you really kind of pay attention you know and um and so johnny turned up to at the studio to to play this song and it was like and I was, and I was probably being all, like, oh, yeah, whatevs. And um, you know, we're all very, very young. I'm only yeah. 23 at this point, 20, you know. And so it's like, um, <coughs> you know, arseholes, basically. <laughs> uh, and I know this thing I'll never forget. Of he just plugged his guitar in, okay, and he start. And I was probably reading a paper. And the second he started, I remember I was on my feet. So was Chester. Just ran over there to go. Where's the other guy? <laughs> Where is the other guy? Do you know what I Because mean? it was just two people playing a guitar. And it was just, uh, you know, amazing. I was saying he's, because Johnny is very much, he's like the other other sort side of the same coin of David Gilmore in that okay. they both have that same thing of they're an orchestra. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, in fact, that is still one of, my proudest ever achievements is there's a song on the album Kite by Kirsty McCall. It's thanks to me. The guitar credit is David Gilmore and Johnny Marr. Wow. There you go. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And, that, and again, he introduced me to Kirsty, Kirsty McCall. So I played, in fact, first thing I played for her was, was brilliant. Was uh, you just haven't earned it yet, babies. I was playing a Smith song with Johnny for <laughs> Kirsty. Fantastic. And then I, my relationship with Kirsty was brilliant. Went on for and then Days. We did Days, her big hit, yep. Kink song, Electric and, Landlady, um, and everything. Yep, yep. Electric Landlady, all that. And um, do you know, it's such a great title. That yeah, it is brilliant. Um, <laughs> her, 
her, her alternative title choice was gonna was Al Green was my valet. <laughs> <laughs> she had such brilliant titles, didn't she, with the Elvis oh, and the chip shop and everything the, else? And yeah. the wit, the wit on that woman. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so and and it's you know we're still. I mean, I still. What's nice is that you know my son is now at Manchester Uni, and. Uh, and as often, and I'm, he's always the first person I call when I go up. And you know, as often as not, you know, I'll go and see him. or come see. Him. He came out to have dinner with a, in a Chinese with me and my boy last time I was up. It's adorable. Wow. He is, you know, he's still he's just the nicest man in the world. And he's got that thing. There's only two people I know who are quite like this. I know lots of people still love it, but um, and I'm not in. This isn't meant to be a diss of any other guitar player, but it just seems particular to both Johnny Marr and Phil Manzanera. Okay. Both seem to have this thing that every day, every time they pick up a guitar, it's Christmas morning. They're ten. They're ten years old, and they've just been given their first guitar. <laughs> you know, it's that exciting to them. You know, it's so, and I envy that so much. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. Lovely stuff. Um, and let's move on to Pink Floyd then. I mean, obviously your connection with them and every pretty much member of the group, you've played with them all solo know, yeah. and everything else. I mean, you, you, I you're so involved. I mean, you obviously, you kind of, you didn't replace Roger Waters. That's the wrong way of putting it, but you, no, you, you came you. in no. afterwards. You can't, you can't replace somebody like that. That's not what would happen. No. But um, did you work with Roger um, solo stuff before or after the Pink Floyd stuff? Roger? Yeah. Uh, I've done the thing. I, do you know what? Funny enough, is I uh, because Pat Leonard produced Roger's next album after I'd done the Floyd. He produced, and which is funny because he co-wrote a song on Momentary Lapse of Reason, yep. the Floyd record. Yeah, and then um, then he was asked to produce uh, Amused to Death, which he did, and I was actually asked to play on that um, by <laughs> by Pat, um, and it was quite funny. And I and and and. A, Again, it's this thing of being young. I thought, whoa, well, that'd be hilarious. What a great gag that would be. And I thought, well, obviously, I need to ask David. And so I asked David and I said, um, David, actually, I've been asked to play Rogers' album. How, would you be all right with that? He goes, yeah, yeah, of course, it's fine. And I just thought about it for a second. I thought, it isn't, is it? It really isn't. It's not. So I didn't. So I turned it down. Uh, unlike some people. Uh, and um, uh, But I have worked with him with, uh, uh, with the, I mean, I've, I played with him and David yeah. at uh, a um, a Palestinian benefit. So, which was and, and the funny thing, the idea was, I think one of them just said, "I'll do it," but but the deal is, um, we have to play to know him is to love him, right? <laughs> which is a lovely gag and sounds great <laughs> on paper. And apparently, it's uh, it's not just that; it, it's it's not being obtuse. It's, it's Pink Floyd used to do that as a sound check number. Okay, back in the day, which yeah. I would love to. I'd love to hear a recording of Pink yeah. Floyd playing to know him is to love him. Um, but then, and it was all very funny. It was just going to be going, they were going to get up and do it. But then it all got, well, Roger wanted to change the key. And then and there's this part. And then I can't sing this part. And then someone needs to do this part. And it's suddenly like, well, it's just, if we can't just get up and do it, it's not funny. Well, we're going to have to fucking labor <laughs> over this thing. It's not really a great gag anymore, is it? So, <laughs> um, I can't remember if we did it or not, actually. <laughs> uh, but it was great to do that. Uh, and then, of course, Roger came and sang with the Source for the Secrets. Yeah. Um, that's in New York. But uh, those were simpler times. 
<laughs> ah, there you go. So is that, yeah. is that how you got into Pink Floyd then? That connection with it, with your friend again, like saying, "Come on." It was and- uh, no, 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 no. I got into Pink. No, it was uh, I'd first I first been brought to David's attention because I was playing for Dream Academy, Nick yeah. Clothes Band, and um, I'd played on some demos, um, um, and which I think David then went on and produced. And uh, and it's because Nick Clothes, who he now does all the music for Nick Broomfield's uh, okay. movies, yeah. and. Uh, and who's who's still he's still, he's still the most irrepressible, enthusiastic, Bob, God, yes, wow, sort of character. A brilliant, something I envy. And, and he, uh, and and he'd obviously, you know, he played what I'd done on his tracks to David, and David had probably gone, oh, that's all right. And of course, Nick's gone. David thinks you're amazing. <laughs> he thinks you're incredible. So I'm sure, he doesn't. Um, and we supported David on his solo tour at, at this uh, in Birmingham, and so I met David. And 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 again, you know, Nick's going. David's dying to meet you. <laughs> he really was. He really isn't. And so I sort of presented. I was stuck with David backstage, and it was just because you know David's not the chattiest guy in the world. He, you know, he doesn't. This, fantastic on email, though. Must be said. Okay. That's, that's his great medium. Um, and. <clears throat> and we had this excruciating, awful meeting where just no one said anything, and <laughs> him being the ranking officer got to walk away. And then, and then I just something I I just started bumping into him places. I was obviously getting invited to better parties because I just started seeing him out. Also, because unlike other sort of mega rock stars, what what's who all inhabit? You only ever saw at gigs or at really swanky things parties, in Chelsea yeah. or in Mayfair. Right, that's that's where they lived. Yep. Okay, all that, all that lot. David and Rick Wright were West Eleven. They were Labrook Grove boys, which is not Notting Hill. Notting Hill, not like it is now. But then Notting Hill was the coolest place in London, and it was mm-hmm. everywhere up and down. And it was, but you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't find any Claptons or Jaggers up there. <laughs> so I've got, and that, I've, and I think that's the thing that suddenly made me think, oh, these guys feel like home because you know. And so I used to, you know, David used to go to one nine two, the wine bar we all went to, and um, uh, and so, uh, so then it was basically he was coming in to play with Brian Ferry when I was okay. working with Brian. So I kind of got to, I mean, I say got to know him. I was, I was absolutely terrified of him, but uh, <laughs> and I think that's how it came. And then the sort of, uh, then I had this thing of I, I went on holiday. Um, to Thailand, my girlfriend too. And what it was one of those ironic things where back in the days where in Thailand you'd buy bootleg cassettes, right? Of things. And I bought a copy of the wall, which actually only had half the album on it. And I went on this total <laughs> sort of Gilmore tip when I was on holiday. And I got back, and of course, this is back in the days of answer phones. Yeah. And uh, when I think about it, I probably I could have, I don't think I had one of those remote things where you could play get it to play your answers down the phone, but I don't think they worked internationally or something, you know, the eighties, mate. And, uh, and I got back and there's all these messages from David saying, uh, I've got, I'm doing this Amnesty International gig with Kate Bush. Um, um, you know, do you want to come and play with me? And then like, hi guy, I really want you for this gig. I'm going to come and play with you. No. Hi guy, uh, the gig's tomorrow. And, uh, and then, okay, sorry guy. Oh no. <laughs> and I got there, I'm just like, oh no. <laughs> that was my one chance, and I blew it. So, uh, but then, like, a, really, not long after that, um, if I saw it in Q magazine, which was brand new, it had just come out, Q magazine, and there was this thing about them getting doing an album. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And um, 
And then I got a call from David out of the blue. Uh, so, and he was in LA. And it was and, and this actually set the scene for my relationship with David for the next 40 years. <laughs> I just said, hello, guys. So I don't know if you've seen, but, uh, you know, we're putting Pink, Pink Floyd back together and going on the road. Um, so I've got two questions, really. Uh, one, would you be interested? And uh, would you be available? It's like, it's 13 months. Crazy. So I'm, oh, I'm, I'm, I think I could muster some interest, David. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And uh, and yeah, yeah, I'm available. And he went, oh, not working then. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> oh, fantastic. And as you said, there, it was it was a grueling 13 months by the sound of things. Yeah, well, it was done. It was like a, it was done like a school year. That's what's sweet right. about it. Look at that. In that, it was uh, we we went over. Although it was August, we went over to rehearse in Toronto, and so yeah, we basically did the Christmas term in America <laughs> when we came back, and we literally we had four weeks at Christmas, just like at school, yeah. and then we had the spring term where <laughs> we went to Australia, New Zealand, Japan, um, and probably a bit more of America. And then, then, then it was the Easter holidays <laughs> came home again, and then it was Europe. <laughs> Did someone have problem with 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 childcare or something? Did they need to get home to look after the kids? Was that the issue? <laughs> I think that was probably like that. Yeah, I don't know. It's, I think it was what these are the days. It was um, it was uh, structured around a tax year. I believe this is back when everyone used to do tax years out. Hmm. In fact, because well, what's funny was, I mean, which I, I would never do, um, and. Because uh, and but what was funny was when I got the gig, uh, top rate tax was sixty percent. So I was just like, "Fuck it, I'm not going to make any money anyway. I'm just going to buy some new suits and get smashed, and it'll you know it'll be great." Um, but then literally uh, just after I got the gig, they cut the top rate tax rate to forty percent. Like, oh, <laughs> well, that's nice. <laughs> Um, and so, so when you when you join in a band like Pink Floyd, I mean, they're, they're iconic, they're legendary. I mean, distinct sound. They've got a rich history, an iconic bass player as well. In the past, with obviously with Roger. So, how did you approach mm. kind of stepping into the role as as the band's kind of bassist at this point? Then, uh, I, I got it all wrong. Okay, I, I got it all wrong um, in that I was playing all the wrong basses. Uh, I was kind of I was too in my own. <clears throat> you know, it was the eighties. The eighties were about bass players. I was one of those kids, and it was all you know. Playing bass was not about was all about putting your stamp on stuff. Yeah, you know. And much as I tried, and it took me a, a you know a long time to, which I think actually in, in a lot of cases kind of worked. But it was like I mean, there's stuff like I said, you know, things like um. Uh, although I've, I've had to reappraise a lot of the stuff I hated, I've kind of reappraised with fullness of time, especially when during lockdown, when I did this series of YouTube videos, lockdown lips, and there was all this stuff that I hated and have been so embarrassed about for years, like the slap break in brick in the wall and, uh, and my bass solo and money. And it, it turns out that people are incredibly fond of them and attached to them. So that's actually really, really nice. Um, which is why when they redid Momentary Lapse of um, Delicate Sound of Thunder and my bass solo got taken out of money. And any time up to a few years ago, I would have been like, oh, thank Christ for that. But now I'm like, no, what you do that for? <laughs> well, I actually get why you do it because it just makes the song so long. And, you know, pe people listen to it, it, it are bass players and they can find versions of it online. So I'm not really bothered. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. But, you know, because you, you've got to be honest, a lot of people are just, 
going to skip through it anyway. Non-base players is going to skip through it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, and then we have to mention The Division Bell, another huge album, number one all over the world. And I think Nick Mason had said in an interview that your playing influenced the mood of that record as well. So so tell me about what you remember with the recording and the putting together of that record. Well, that's right. That's not. I don't think that's really the recording of it. I think what Nick's talking about there, and bless him, that's very, very kind of him to say, uh, is is I, I got what was they decided to start the album in the way that Pink Floyd used to start albums when they were sort of still mates, um, <laughs> <laughs> which was or rather than someone just presenting their work to the band, uh, which was where they just go in the studio and just you know jam for weeks and just whatever came out they would then whittle down and whittle down, and so they decided to go and do that at Britannia Row uh, with just the three of them and me. Which was an amazing thing to be asked to go and join in on, and also, but I, as part of the sort of soap opera that my life with Pink Floyd is, <laughs> is that I'd only then um, I, I'd been going out with Gala, Rick's daughter, for a bit, and we'd just been away for our first holiday. Right, we went to Mexico for one of the most magical holidays I've ever had. Three weeks going around Mayan ruins, yeah. backpacking, you know, and um, so I'd literally just got home. From that and because i lived just around the corner for rick i was sort of i was designated as his driver <laughs> so i was driving to and from the studio every day and i mean i loved i loved it i adored him but it was it you know that things were still quite fresh and um and you know i certainly wasn't going out with Carla for job security believe me that was not helpful uh and um and poor old rick was getting teased terribly by david and nick it's you know bands are just that they're kids, you know, they're like school kids when they get together. So there was that element of it. But what was, it was actually, I actually, in that time, kind of got very close to Rick because um, he was the one who just wanted to be in the room working all the time. Because And I'd never seen this stuff. They had all this old gear out. I'd never seen Rick's Farfisa or his Benson Echo or his, you know, I'd only seen his kind of super 80s Kurtzweil Zhuzhi stuff, you know. Yeah, and it was great. So to see him, you know, with his old organs and everything, was brilliant. And so, and we just used to sit and jam a lot. So, and so yeah, I think quite a lot of grooves came out of that. Mm-hmm. And and come about, you know, I, I mean, because my natural inclination is to play, <clears throat> and especially then, you know, it all gets better as you get older. Is is not necessarily too much, but more than Pink Floyd would like. <laughs> you know so that i so you know and i mean often i come up with a line and david go that's nice but get rid of that get rid of that get rid of that get rid of that that." and then and and you know what he was you know he's right i mean it's pink floyd they know how it works you'd hope so (laughs) and you mentioned Sorry, I was going to say, you, you mentioned Rick there. I mean, he, not many people talk about him. He, he was a quiet man, wasn't he? So so what, what was he like? He was, he was just, he was brilliant. He was also, um, he was incapable of, I mean, one of the reasons he was, he was incapable of bullshit, okay. just incapable of it. Of uh, He could only ever speak his truth, you know, and um, which could be very funny and very awkward sometimes. <laughs> I bet. But, and he just wanted to be on his boat. And that's where I used to, you know, he'd, he'd spent 20 years being bullied by someone. So, you know, he was, it, it, I mean, that was the lovely thing about that album was seeing this guy coming, come back to, come back to life, you know, hence the song, which I had a hand in writing, which was nice. Um, 
And, you know, he was always, that's why I used to, I used to sail with him. I sailed the Atlantic with him. Oh, wow. He used to do that every year. Fantastic. Sail the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I always love that anyone who sails, I love because, you know, cars are obvious and easy, but sailing is elemental and, and it's how the world was found. And it's, you know, there's yeah. something spiritual about it. So, um, you know, always trust people who sail. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> I live my life by that. There's a t-shirt uh, in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, there is. And, uh, and that's why I used to love being with him on his boat. Um, because, you know, because that's where he was just, he was happy and he was confident and in control and everything, you know? So, but yeah, no, he was, he was a love. I mean, I used to love just him. One of my sort of most touching memories. And of course, if it was in the days of iPhones, I would have just bloody recorded it, but I didn't was when Stanley, our son was born. Um, we went down to France, his lovely house in France and he had this piano. There was a piano in the House of France. There was something about it where I remember I, whenever we went there, I walk in the door, sit at that piano, and you'd come up with an idea. Wow. <laughs> Magic. It would make you have, have an idea. Yeah, there was something about it. And I just remember one time when Stanley was literally, he's just a couple of months old, and Rick sat him on his lap, and Stan's just going, bang, 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 you know, just whacking at the piano in that way that babies do. And Rick, just was coming up with chords underneath him, sort of weaving around the sort of, you know, brick right chords around it. And it was just, just sublime. And if, you know, and I was thinking, Stan, if you had any idea what was happening right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, incredible memories, wonderful stuff. Um, and then just someone else to touch on, uh, Nick Mason, obviously you've worked with him um, for, for many, many years, but the Saucer Full of Secrets stuff, which has been going on for the last, was it <coughs> maybe six or seven years well, now? Is it something like that? But uh, No, it's five years. It's oh, five, it five years. Yeah. Well, not, I mean, annoyingly, we had, you know, we had a two year break. Yeah, of course. Um, we were, you know, lockdown happened the week before we were starting rehearsals for our next tour. So, uh, yeah, that's amazing. So we kind of made up for it last year. Last year, because I've never toured like this before. Nick certainly hasn't. Like, so this is the first time he's ever slept on a tour bus. <laughs> and, uh, and he loves it because I, and it's a sort of touring that now as I get, I used to love, you know, the thing of just hanging around being in a city for three days and just doing, whereas now I can we just get on with it, you know? <laughs> so um, we do, we move so fast. Uh, like in Europe, we did 60 shows in 90 days in 29 countries. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. Which is, you know, a lot of traveling, and then oh, you went across to America, didn't you, as well, last year? And then you did a lot of Five stuff with Pantheon. In America. Yeah, Pantheon Podcast, who Vintage Rock Pod are a proud part of as well. And you, you oh, met okay. a lot of people across there. And I know you did a lot of interviews yes. with the, the different podcasts which are involved. And, and that American we tour did. went down an absolute treat. Everyone was saying what a fantastic show it was. And yeah, it just went, went so well for you guys. Yeah, no, it went brilliantly. Although some of the, I mean, because it was the third time that tour had been rebooked. So, um, some of the venues were weird. We seem to end up in a lot of musical theatre theatres, okay. you know, places that would sort of have frozen on the rest of the time. <laughs> um, rather than, and it's kind of for us, it was actually the, the more rock and roll theatres tended to work better. But yeah, no, it was it was a great tour. And of course, Gary and I still managed to keep our podcast going all the way yep. through all of that. So which is which is great, but it's like slightly when you're having, you know, because we we research a lot. So yeah. Yeah, it's not easy. It's not easy. And just quickly no. on the, the source of all the secrets, um, I, I heard you say in another interview that it's the most fun and fresh thing you've ever done because you're getting to play the music that 
Pink Floyd probably didn't even play back then when they when they recorded it, or haven't done so for <laughs> 40, 50 years. So it was so nice to go back to that psychedelic stuff and play the stuff that had just been sat for so long on, on vinyl, basically. That's the thing, exactly. Well, well, the key thing is it's not new, but it's fresh. Yes. Yeah, it feels really fresh. These songs feel fresh. I, I, got, I think that songs get tired from being played too much. You know, I'm sure comfortably numbs going, oh, can I just have a rest? Um, <laughs> but, um, and yeah, that's the thing. A lot of it hasn't been played, but also it's because it, it I, what I, what's lovely is it connects Nick to who he was, mm-hmm. that kid that he was, and it connects everyone else to who they were. It connects me to my first band. It connects Gary to him as a kid, you know, so, and, and it has this lovely typical effect, but also, yeah, because it's, it's kind of Pink Floyd as a pop group and it's playful and it's, and a lot of it's light. I mean, a lot of it's still quite dark and intense, but there's also all the different colors, you know, I mean, stuff like, um, uh, uh, obscured by clouds where we go into you know and when nick's laying down this like full-on kraut rock groove and it's you know <laughs> so it's great the places it goes fantastic stuff and then just to, to finish off you 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 mentioned before we started recording that kind of podcasting is your life at the moment isn't it and yourself and, and gary rock on tours and it's a fantastic yeah. show it's brilliant you interview some of the most incredible guests across the musical world and everything so so fill us in on all that that you're doing right now uh, well, we just did our first live event. In fact, our episode this week was our first live one where we, because we have this running gag. There are things that keep, for some reason, no matter who we're talking, things that always come up are prog. There's always some, everyone has some sort of prog reference. And 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 with it, people either, it was either the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show or <laughs> the Sex Pistols at the screen on the green. That's the thing that kicked people off. And Gary was at the Sex Pistols at the screen on the green gig, oh. right? And I'm never allowed to forget it. Um, <laughs> and But then as part of the London Podcast Festival, we got offered uh, the screen on the green to do a live event. And so we went and did our first live rock on tours with Steve Diggle from the Buzzcocks, who oh, also brilliant. played that night, yeah. and Glenn Matlock from the Sex Pistols. Oh, and it was just like the most brilliant kind of... And then, in fact, David Coverdell, who's become the sort of patron saint of the rock on tours, who we just adore, um, he actually recorded a special video intro for us. Oh, wow. As well. So, yeah, so that was nice. And hopefully, there'll be more of those coming up, live things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, guys, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you for the last, well, nearly hour. Thank you so much for your time. It's been You're wonderful hearing all your stories. You're very welcome. All the very best to you. There you go, the brilliant Guy Pratt there. Check out the podcast he does with his good friend Gary Kemp. It's called Rock on Tours and it's available, well, everywhere really. Well, that's it pretty much for me this week on The Big Interview Show. Thanks again for listening. Make sure you subscribe to Vintage Rock Pod on your podcast app so you get all the episodes that are released every single day. And please do leave Vintage Rock Pod a five-star review on the podcast app that you use and look for Vintage Rock Pod on YouTube as well. You get to see all the videos of these classic rock stars that I've interviewed over the years. Anyway, I'm going to be back tomorrow with more On This Day Rock goodness with This Day Rocks. So until then, take care. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. My mom and dad. From airship. 
the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.